on the Lord's Day to celebrate Jesus' finished work, his resurrection from the dead, and commune around his word? Very good. Open up to Acts chapter 8. We are at the moment going through, the, the, uh, uh, in a topical fashion, the, the book of Acts. That, that, that first book that we have, which is not the life of Christ, but the life of his apostles. That first historical book of the New Testament. In that its theme, it's not the only book that is historically accurate. But what we mean is that it is the first book which recounts for us histor- history. It, it's a historical narrative of what was happening in the early church. And it's helpful for us to be able to go to it and study it as not just storytelling, but theological, spirit-inspired truth-compelling history so that we can study it and ask ourselves if this is what the church did under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the apostles, if this is what is inspired and recorded for us in our Bible, how do we see through the lens of the, the book of Acts, Jesus Christ as now king of the world, as now head of the church, as now the the new covenant king and conquest leader, how do we see him build his kingdom and establish his church and save his people? We started out with week one looking at the fact that he loves from heaven through his spirit to bless the preaching of his word. When his people take up the the spirit-inspired text and preach the gospel in public proclamation to many people, God loves to use that for the infilling and empowering and saving of his people. We also saw that fellowship, when the church binds together in their love of the truth and their use of the sacraments and their discipline around the Lord's disciplines, they, they, they are blessed by the Holy Spirit to see souls added, to see the church built. And then we saw that God also uses miracles in a, in a powerful, divine way to, to build and, 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 and extend his church. We saw then also that even persecution... Even persecution is a tool of God in order to to, to refine and to build his church. Now, last week, I'm blanking, but last week it was providence. There we go. Thank you for reminding me. Providence, the invisible hand of God, and how how he orders things and how he governs things in ways that we could never control, and he saves people and builds his church. Now, some of those things, some of those things depend on us. The preaching of the word, that depends on us. We could fix that right now, and if we did not preach the word faithfully, we could start today. The praying and, 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 and maybe the, the, the one about fellowship, we could, we could make a start on that today, but it wouldn't be immediate because it wouldn't be genuine and deep and spiritual. Uh, uh, maybe one of the other ones like miracles or providence, those things we definitely, that's not even really in our control except for the fact that we might pray. Some things we cannot do immediately. Some things we cannot really do ourselves at all because they're the work of God, but the one that we look at today is in fact a work that we, that each of us, if we've never done it before or if we have become lax and lazy in it today, we can fix that up. And that is evangelism. The act, the practice, the discipline of evangelism. So look at Acts chapter 8. We've referenced this verse quite a few times over the last few weeks, and we will do it again. Acts chapter 8. And look at verse 4. We'll read verse 4 and 5. This is what the word of the only true living God says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, 
am the Christ. That's going to be our topical verse that we start from and becomes our platform and springboard into many other things. May God bless this word in our midst this morning. Amen. We need to start asking the question, as we talk about evangelism, we have to ask the question, it is incumbent to ask, what is evangelism? I'm not going to start using examples and verses here and there to sort of say, go and do it, unless we first establish what it is. Because there's a few things that evangelism is not, though it passes for evangelism in the modern church. Now, first of all, I know this is going to hurt, but being nice in the office, wearing a smile, okay, being the kindest, nicest, most generous person in your office, in your school, in your class, in your college, is not evangelism. I'm just going to let that sink in for a bit. What? Being nice, being kind, being smiley, being generous, being the, 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 the now, I, I always say, don't try and be the nicest in the office because, because if you've got a Mormon, they'll always out-nice you. It's so annoying. Uh, I've tried, and, that, and, and they've got more money. They've always got more money, so they're more generous. So you can't out-nice them. Uh, but nonetheless, you, it, it, that, itself, that is not evangelism. Christian conduct and godly character is not evangelism. Acts of mercy and humanitarianism. When the church gets together and pulls some funds and we put on a soup kitchen for the homeless or we do a food drive or we get together cans and we, we put on a great community sausage sizzle, those things are not the gospel. They are not evangelism. There may be somebody in the church who, who contends that their sautéed onions are heavenly, but it's still not evangelism. Neither of those things, none, none of the things that we've mentioned at the moment, have, have any capacity whatsoever to save somebody. There, there, there's no good news embedded in them. There's, there's no way whatsoever that, that those things doing them could bring anybody who is currently, as the Bible tells us clearly, from birth on a hell-bent trajectory towards their death and then eternal condemnation for their sins. There is nothing that polishing their shoes, doing a free car wash, giving them soup or filling their belly in any other way is ever going to stop them from entering their eternal ruin. Now, that does not mean that any of these things are sin. It is a good, godly, lawful, Christian, merciful, beneficial thing to do to purchase food, to give it out. The church ought to do those sorts of things and bless her when she does. It's not a sin to do those things. It's a sin to call those things evangelism. So don't do it. Do those things and do not call them evangelism. We'll go even further what evangelism is not. Your testimony is not evangelism. A story about how one time God met your needs or God came through and, and did something marvelous in answer to prayer, a story of marvelous providence, uh, the way that he helped you find the woman of your dreams or, or healed you in some way or, or led you to a great church. None of those things are the gospel. How God saved you is not the gospel. They are tremendous inroads to the gospel. Those are tremendous things to utilize in conversation as you're talking to people to, to make some, some steps towards sharing the gospel, but they are not evangelism themselves. Evangelism can only be called thus when we make explicit proclamation of the gospel. So here's our working definition of evangelism. It is explicit gospel proclamation to lost souls in the expectation that God will bless the sowed seed. 
It is explicit gospel proclamation to lost souls in the expectation that God will bless the sowed seed. So in other words, we can't call it evangelism unless and until you explicitly proclaim as authoritative truth, not suggest, the word is proclaim, put it forward as truth. That doesn't mean you have to yell like I yell. I don't talk like this when I'm in the office most of the time. I don't talk like this when I'm chatting to a friend most of the time. But proclamation does not mean volume. Proclamation means firmness of authority. It is said as if it is true, and without it, nothing is true. It's not suggested as one possible submission of how maybe we could view the world if we were willing to try. It is the truth that Christ is Lord, and he died for his people. It is explicit proclamation. This is what we call the data, or the logos of the gospel, that it actually has information content that if not shared, then it is not evangelism. The gospel has Content And that content is that God, the one true God, has created all mankind and it is his law, his standards, and his decrees that every single one of us have fallen infinitely short of. We have none of us been able to, in our response to God, in our life beneath God, in our actions through life, none of us have been able to respond rightly by giving God the glory due because we are born dead in sin and we live willingly in our sin so that every single one of us has against our account the reality and the true record of all of our sins, the least of which all the way up to the worst of which, but even the least of our sins is worthy of an eternal damnation because it is an act of treason and rebellion and unlawfulness and unrighteousness against an infinite eternal being whose standards are personal and infinite and eternal so that every single one of us stands condemned before God and God in his grace and his mercy and his love. God was pleased to, from eternity past, plan and then in time to really do it, send his son, the, 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 the person that shared his eternal, uh, uh, infinite, divine essence and being. He sent his son to become one of us, born just like us and yet without sin, to live a life under all of the same struggles and, and, and temptations, yet without sin, and then go to the cross without sin, but taking onto himself our sin, so that dying beneath God, dying on the wrath at the hands of, on the cross at the hands of men, he was absorbing the punishment due to us. That he took the penalty you deserve and that I deserve, that we all deserved. Conglomerated into one act, the wrath of God was, was poured out into Jesus Christ. He absorbed it in totality and his eternal life expired. Human death was therefore paid for of infinite value to the Father. And yet, and yet, because he had no sin of his, of his own, once, once our sin was discharged, once our sin was paid for and therefore erased from the records, there was nothing legal, nothing just to any more hold Jesus down. And therefore, he exploded, he erupted, he rose from the dead by the glorious power of the Father because he had made a finished complete atonement for us. And now anybody and everybody is compelled and they must believe on Jesus. And because of his finished work, now the only thing that God demands of us is a belief, an assent, an acknowledgement, and a trust 
in the news that God proclaims from heaven. This is the armistice. This is the good news of peace that comes from heaven. A herald saying to you that God is offering a lay down of the arms. God is offering the ceasefire. God is offering a welcome into his eternal kingdom if you stop your fighting. If you even stop your trying to please him, he's already done it. All in his son, Jesus Christ, just believe. It is faith and faith alone that makes us right before him. And he who rose also ascended into heaven from where he will come one day to bless those who had faith in him, reward us for our service, and to judge every single person, living or dead, who rejected his gospel. Friends, without that, there is no evangelism. Without that, no one can be saved. There is one name given by God to man by which we must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. And the name of Jesus Christ is not known outside of the context of the gospel. Now, how can they believe? How could they call on him who they have not heard? How can they hear somebody who has not been preached to them? Friends, what will our loved ones and the world do if they are condemned and without the message of Jesus and we hold that message and refuse to take it to them? Evangelism is the explicit proclamation of the gospel data to lost souls. Now, to argue this a little bit, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 6. So go there and find yourself in verse 7. But we can summarize to say in, the, in chapter 2 of Acts when Peter preached, in chapter 3 of Acts when Peter preached, in chapter 4 when the apostles spoke, and again in chapter 5, and here we'll see in chapter 6, also in chapter 7 by the mouth of Stephen, and later on in chapter 8 as we'll see, every single time we've seen the apostles been filled by the Spirit and have some opportunity to speak, the things they speak of is a person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what they do. And they compel people to believe. This is the, this is the last part that I forgot to say. That in, it is not evangelism until you have explicitly laid out the gospel and you call them to believe on that by faith and repentance. Until you do that, there's a way that we can pat ourselves on the back and say that we evangelize when really all we did was share what we believe which in a pluralistic society means almost nothing to your neighbor. You can describe everything about the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and then say, yes, yeah, so that's what us Christians believe. And they'll say, pretty weird, cool though. I'm, uh, thank you for Christmas. That's all I got. <laughs> the offense and what makes it evangelism is when you proclaim the news to them and require of them a response. Is when you then say, and you are one of those dead in your sin. You need to believe today. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I help you? What questions can I answer? When can we next meet up? You need to believe this or you are still currently and forever will be condemned, dead in your sin, going to hell. That makes it evangelism. So we see those, those uh, elements at all times in the apostles' words. An explicit outlaying of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, what that means, and then a call for people to repent. Look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. This is Stephen, who was a deacon, and he uh, got busy preaching the word. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love that. You know, sometimes we can think that, that the Jews were all against the church, and the church was just like pure Gentile from the beginning. For the first about decade, it was all, almost, it was 
all Jewish converts. There was Levites. There was priests leaving the priesthood or at least being thrown out because they were opposed or staying in covertly, whatever the case was. There was many, many Jews who had seen Jesus' life and ministry, who had chanted for his death, who were saved. The gospel is glorious. But look at what verse 7 says. The word of God continued to increase. Not the vibe, not the vibe of God. You know, Jerusalem just just felt real, you know, you could, yeah, you had to be there. You know, the smoke was there, the lights were there. It was, it was the vibe of God increasing as the church did it. No. Doesn't it say that the love of God increased and multiplied? Because you can't increase or spread the love of God. That's not our commission. What we can do is proclaim the love of God and the justice of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God and the holiness of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was the logos of God. That's the Greek meaning. The the word of God, the logical words shared verbally, intellectually, and understandably from one person to another. The word of God kept on spreading. Their speech was about Christ. Look at verse 9. Here now we get to to Stephen. Uh, uh, It says that then some of those... (coughs) who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. That language of disputing is arguing, uh, uh, debating, discussing heatedly. That's what that means. Now, you, you expect then it to say, which was real unloving. Of course, Stephen didn't engage in that because he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a soldier of love, you know, and all you need is love according to the apostle John Lennon. <clears throat> no, Stephen, it says nothing that this is, this is bad. This is a part of the, the commendation of Stephen. He's got 50 guys around him, a group of guys from a synagogue, and a whole bunch of guys from other groups. They're all coming to him, and like one guy with a sword, like, like I, I think back when I read Stephen, I often think back to David's mighty men of, I think it's 1 Samuel 18, maybe 2 Samuel 18, when it just lists these blokes these dudes who for their hardcore acts of manly courage were added into the, the inner circle of David's soldier army, his, his, his infantrymen. These guys, they, they tell the story. This is in my notes, but the, I, I'm there, so I'm going for it. It tells the story about the guy who, who was fighting the Philistines because they came to take the land and all of the other guys fled, but he stood there and fought them and destroyed half of an army and it says that his hand froze to the sword. Now, whether that was his ligaments closing up because he had lost all of his, 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 his muscular uh, uh, ability to move and he was, he was built with lactic acid and all he could do was throw around his broadsword or because it was so cold at that time of year that he fought in the snow and killed them all, drenched with their blood, and now his, his hand couldn't move. I don't know, but either way, it's awesome. There was other guys who, who, who on their own went and took out half of an army for the sake of the glory of God and the honor of their king. They did these things. And that's how we see, we see Stephen here. He's surrounded by these men and as if arrows are being flown at him and his, his shield is blocking every one of them and his javelin is going through the heart of the men around him. He is disputing with dozens of men about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is that at the essence of disputation, is a transfer, a a, a dialogue of words. It requires content that is argued about. And so we see again that evangelism is is, uh, primarily the sharing of words. Look at Acts chapter uh, 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 8. 
and verse 4 that we read earlier. We see those who were scattered went around preaching the word. That was the act of evangelism that they engaged in. Look at verse 12. It says that of all the people there in Samaria, when they believed Philip as as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You have this, this language here of preaching or proclamation, the, 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 the good news heralding of certain and specific news, which we see here pertains to the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Look at verse uh, 9, verse 20. This is after Paul's conversion. He gets to the act of evangelism. He did not hold free food. He did not hand out small business cards with a love heart on them or a cross or a cross and a love heart. It says in verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. What is so central to evangelism at every point of the, of the apostles' ministry is explicit proclamation of facts. This, this word of proclaimed could otherwise be heralding. It is a telling of news to people. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is, when it says that he confounded them, it literally means he put them into mental disarray. Like what happens when you discombobulate somebody with a right hook that doesn't quite knock them out, right? We're not told it was physical, I'm not told it wasn't. I'm just going to put that out there. But he was at least intellectual and spiritual and theological in his argumentation because the next word that is used there, he confounded them by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How many, how many types and styles and, and church's practice of evangelism is out there that, that, that is able to, to call itself evangelism without any, and, and, any reference to or even any concern about whether the person they're talking to believes that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the Messiah of God sent to the world to save people. If that's not the center of our conversation, that's not the center of our concern, we're just not evangelists. This is what the apostles were continually doing. We'll see in verse 28 and verse 29 of chapter 9. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. There again, preaching. It was always a word-based ministry. And in verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. We'll leave that last part out. That he was speaking and disputing with, and they'll always love it. That's, that's what I'm going to tell you. They'll, they'll think you're the best neighbor, best friend, favorite colleague when you speak and dispute, okay? That's my extra biblical promise. You'll never be hated. You'll never be killed. Paul knew that his ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus was not simply one to share love, share feelings, share a vibe. We've said this and it needs repeating. It was one that is passed down to us also in our imitation of Paul who imitated Christ. It is always a word-based, logos-central, gospel-focused proclamation as if it is true because it is that is authoritative and that calls people to repent and believe go back to acts chapter 8 verse 4 
They were scattered. They went around preaching the word. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Friends, this needs to be a, 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 a tattooed on our eyeballs. This needs to be on our hanging from our rearview mirror, put all over the, the inside cover of our Bible. This needs to be a resolution for life, that we are going about preaching the word and proclaiming to people the Christ. That is why we are still here. That is why we live. The practice of the apostles was to find every opportunity they could to speak and explain the facts of the gospel of Jesus and call people to repentance and faith. But there is a second element here that we said in our definition. What is evangelism? It is explicit proclamation of the gospel content to lost souls with the expectation that God will bless the sown seed. There are ways of doing evangelism that we see ourselves as, as a Noah. We see ourselves as the condemning Isaiah. That we, we see ourselves as maybe we, we, we embody that negative uh, part of Noah that we see is, is called against in, in uh, not Noah, Jonah in the book that, called, that, that is titled after his name. And we kind of embody this, this idea that the great commission is that we get to go into the world and tell people they're going to hell and Jesus died just to prove it. And that really what you have to proclaim is, is some kind of barring up against them, is a, is a closing of the kingdom doors in their face because they're not yet Christians. And, and like maybe one of you would believe, but, but probably not. You wouldn't. You wouldn't like it. You're so rebellious. You're so sinful. As if to preach the gospel as if it's bad news, as if people wouldn't love and be fulfilled to the deepest part of their being to embrace Jesus Christ. We can get, we can get far, too, far too negative in our proclamation as we are explicit and we do emphasize sin and the death of Jesus Christ. However, the tone of our preaching needs to be as if it really, really is the best news that could be communicated. The fact, the, the essence, the tone of our preaching needs to carry the fact that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to seal it in its current condemnation and send it out lost. He came to seek. He came to save. He is still doing that very same work in his church and through his church today. This ought to be our expectation. That all authority, which has now been given to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth, is being wielded and is being leveraged so that he can seek and save whoever and wherever he pleases. He is unlimited. He is unrestrained, entirely unlimited and unrestrained in his gospel power as he marches through the earth, saving all that he wills. He is gracious. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Our only inspired account of church history, our only inspired account of church history, the book of Acts, shows us that the norm is when the gospel is preached by a praying people who believe in Jesus Christ and his power, God always blesses it with souls being saved. None of this nonsense of being faithful, not fruitful. Numbers don't matter. Well, of course, numbers in themselves don't matter, but souls matter. And I read the book of Acts and they count those souls and say 3,000 people got saved. That's better than if five people got saved. Numbers do matter because souls matter, people matter, faces matter. 
We care about people. And so, so, so woe to the pastor or the church or the person who, who seeks the biggest and flashiest church and the flabbiest church he can find. No, numbers don't matter in that sense. But woe to those Christians who simply see, see numbers, see people and do not care as if they can kick back on their lazy boy and say, well, it's about being faithful, not fruitful. You know, who am I to assume that God would use me or my church or my people, my flock to save souls from hell? That's, that's up to God. Yeah, it is up to God. He sent his son. And before his son left, he gave that commission to us to go and to preach with the expectation that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, will pour out repentance and faith from heaven through our preaching. There ought to be that glorious expectation that Jesus is on his conquest through the nations, marching victoriously, fulfilling his promise to Abraham that in him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. We must go. So it's not even enough to just have a really good definition of evangelism when it happens. We actually need to actively go. There's a, there is a dangerous, dangerous stream of hyper-Calvinism that, that Spurgeon fought in his day, that the Puritans fought in their day, and that we still need to fight in our day. This, this hyper-Calvinistic notion that if God wants somebody saved, heck, he, he came to earth from heaven. If he wants somebody saved, he'll bring him through our doors. He's clearly capable. Somebody wants them saved, they'll come up to me, a pastor, or you, the Christian. They'll ask all the questions. They don't need to be sought. This is a this is a lost and dying world. They're all unregenerate and outside of Jesus Christ. And let them die, lest God brings them. It is more common than you realize. As much as we hold to the sovereignty of God in election, the absolute and undiluted sovereignty of God in every event and act that happens in human history, yes. But let us also take seriously the words of that God that command us to go, that show us in the character and life of his son that he loves, he loves to seek and save those who are lost. Must be burning in our heart. I thank God that Paul, that Spurgeon, that other greats of Christian history do not think or believe or behave the way that those hyper-Calvinists do so. Never, never will the true church behave in such a manner. So let us ask this, this question very practically, how can we evangelize? As, as foot soldiers for the new David, Jesus Christ, as, 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 as the army of Joshua going through the land in conquest for Jesus, how do we fight? How, how, what is exactly our tactics in this, in, this, in this warfare for Jesus Christ? How do we actually evangelize? I am so glad that you have asked that question. Here's the first way, and this is, I'm starting really, really easy. The first way that you can evangelize your friends so that they hear the clear, explicit gospel content and a call to believe from somebody who believes that it is true to the, in every fiber of their being is that you can simply say, can I pick you up on Sunday and take you to church? You just invite them to church. Now, I know you can take the gospel out, but if you're fearful to do that, if, you're, if you've found that difficult, and of course there's rebuke to, to not be so cowardly, but friends, let us meet us where we are at. If you find that difficult, if you're a new Christian, if that's not been something you've been able to do, then at least, and for the rest of us, as much as we evangelize, invite your friends and loved ones to church. They'll come here. It is, it is a promise and an oath. It's, it's kind of in my contract that I will say, speak, proclaim the gospel every single time these doors are open and we gather. 
Every preacher will. That is, that is something that is such an effective and usually an overseen part of evangelism because church attendance is very strange for people who haven't been Christians or grown up in the church. And that's true, but it's, it's your job to make it sound not weird. If you can, you know, a bunch of us get together. We sort of study some Bible. I'd love you to be there. Uh, and there's food afterwards. I would plug that all the time. There's wonderful people. Uh, there's a, a not wonderful guy who preaches. But seriously, it's great people. Come along. Just invite them along. How to, what a practical and effective way it is that people can come and hear the gospel in the preaching of God's word. As we looked at in Acts 2 in our first week, God loves to bless the preaching of his world. So you can invite them to church. Secondly, is that you can speak to your family members. You can simply speak to your friends about the gospel. Now, this is all too obvious and yet all too overlooked. It means that not so much that you schedule every Thursday that you'll go and sit down with somebody and have a spiritual meeting about where their soul is at, but it means that you're looking and praying for opportunities at every point of the, of, of the week and every point of the life in the household or with your friends is that you're looking for opportunities to just ask questions. Have you thought about what happens after, after we die? You, you, you reference that. What do you believe about this? What do you think is important about this topic that you're explaining to me? Is there anything I can pray for you? Can I, can I just share something that's on my heart for you? I've, I've been thinking about you and I've been praying for you. Is there any way I can add to that? And, and can I also share something that is, that is on my heart for you? There's just ways that we need to be looking for opportunities to bring the gospel to bear in our conversations because we never know when God might use just one of those conversations. Years later, it will bear its fruit. Or in the moment, as, the, as, as, as God has been doing his background, providential, soil, heart-preparing work, and when we sow the seed, we are expectant and praying that God would bless it. So simply speak with our mouths, our family members, and our friends. The next one, which is... A bit, a bit intimidating for some, super easy for others, especially if you're pragmatic, is the handing out of gospel tracts. T-R-A-C-T-S, not a track. Pet peeve, right? Tract. A tract is a short, written, sometimes spiritual, sometimes political booklet or, or, or pamphlet, right? And we have gospel tracts. It's been the practice of the church since basically the, the Reformation to print out a, a, a brief but lengthier than a few sentences uh, explanations of the gospel so that simply, if, if you don't think you're going to have 10 minutes to share with somebody, if, if you get really stumbling in your explanation of things and, and you're not quite there, and you know if you try, it'll be pretty unclear. You can give them a gospel track, and at that point or later on, and then every single moment that they ever feel led by the Spirit to pick it up, they have a clear gospel presentation waiting for them that God can use to bring them to life. Gospel tracts are kind of weird in our day. Gospel tracts are not the primary way we should only be evangelizing without conversations, but friends, gospel tracts, if we dare not to use them, we will be held accountable. How many letterboxes, how many people could we fail to have a conversation with, but they might just read a gospel tract in their hand or in their letterbox? It is a wonderfully powerful way to do it. Here's the fourth one, is cold evangelism. I know you hate the guy in the shopping center with a car or a boat or, or some life-saving thing or some money for the kids. I'd, 
I'm not dissing what the charities are, but you hate the guy who tries to sell it. And you always look down and try and walk past, and he's just a pro. He's always able to get you to look up, and then he's got you. He asks you some question, you tell yourself, I'm not going to listen, but you're not that much of a jerk, so you at least say hi. And then you're caught, and you hate the fact that somebody you don't know is trying to talk to you in a way that you know they don't care. They just want something from you. We know it's, it's pretty un-Australian as well to just cold uh, uh, approach somebody and start up some conversation instead of giving them the the quick wave, uh, uh, it, it, it's hard to do, and yet we see Paul doing this. As, as Paul goes to, uh, in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, he goes and he just sits down with uh, his missionary friends next to some random gals and starts talking to them about the finished work of Jesus, and their Lydia is saved, and the church plant starts in her house. She's super wealthy. She funds the mission from then on in. We, we, need, to, we need to see that God will allow it to be weird. He's not going to bless it with some beautiful fluency that always comes upon the, the perfect conversation. It's always going to be weird, but that is because you are soldiers of a, of a very alien king to what these people are used to. It's good for us to, to feel that burn, to be sanctified as we do something that is quite strange, but let us do it. Go down, sit with people, do what we can to engage strangers with the gospel. So we invite people to church. We speak naturally and conversationally as opportunity presents itself to our family, friends, and neighbors. We hand out tracts. We approach people uh, in cold evangelism. And here's our fifth one, something that is all the more important as our nation, as our communities and our families are less and less Christian. The fifth way that we must do evangelism is in our family worship. How, how many zealous fathers or, or brothers or, or, or mothers might seek to how they can get the gospel to the farthest reaches of the city and the empire and the world and neglect those who live with them. And not just that we would evangelize our friends and family, but for those shepherds, for those parents especially in our home. Now, maybe also in a non-Christian home, the older brother or the older sister. You can do whatever you can to give some kind of regularity where there is Bible reading, worship to the Lord Jesus, and explanation. Now, this, would be, this is so foreign to our culture, so foreign, I know, to what I'll be calling you to do, but it can be done. Where there is discipline and regularity, there is frequent opportunity and plethora of times that God could bring the gospel to bear on our loved one's hearts for families that are professing Christian. That is, that the parents are Christians and that the, the kids are growing up in your house. And we know that every child, even born in a Christian home, must be born again themselves and place their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their own sins. The parents can use this family worship time, especially times around holidays, Easter, Christmas, utilize them to build up and explain deeply the gospel. Milestones that we can use in graduation or, in, or, or when, they, when they become young men and young women, a post-church discussion on the drive home and over lunch. Family worship throughout the week, it also offers this opportunity to be able to, when we have friends, maybe it's the kids' friends, maybe it's, maybe it's our friends coming over for dinner, it's simply a normal practice that after dinner, we crack open the Bible, we talk about Jesus, we offer up some prayers. And so visitors coming in even to your house will be able to engage in that and be, 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 be exposed to gospel truth that way. I love reading Spurgeon's biography. And in his autobiography, he, he, he explains how many people sought the Lord and were saved because of his after dinner, pre-tea, you know, the English, they've got like 17 meals, 
in the afternoon. It was somewhere between dinner and dessert and tea and second tea and then dinner breakfast. I don't know what they do. And somewhere in there, he would hold house prayers and family worship, sing some hymns, and anybody was welcome. And how many people sought the Lord simply because they knew that that was a time? What if you were the only beacon of light in your street where people knew that maybe the front yard, maybe at Christmas time, maybe every day the door is open and worship is done to Jesus. And you can hear about him if you come to this household. If we see ourselves as lights from heaven, we must set ourselves on the hill. Now let us close out here with simple benefits. What benefits are received or gained through evangelism? Some to us, some to others, and some to God. First of all, it has on us a deeply sanctifying effect. Being a zealous and disciplined and intentional evangelist will increase your prayer life as you realize your need and hope for fruit. It will increase your boldness because as bad and as cowardly as you are, God will meet you out on the battlefield. He will meet you in the act to give you more boldness and strengthen your spine. It helps with holiness because few people, few people, will be able to stay addicted in their sin, stay filthy in their acts while they're going out evangelizing to preach the gospel that evening. How frequent evangelism is a means of grace for us to keep us focused on God and to reject our sin. And of course, for us, there is the blessing of rewards in heaven. Secondly, benefits for others is that they received salvation. That's the only benefit we're going to offer because that is the the most glorious and beautiful of benefits, that your friends can receive salvation simply because you dared to evangelize them. Your friends, the, the ones that you don't know yet that might just become your eternal brother and sister after you share with them. John G. Payton said, who was the missionary to Vanuatu, he said, life, any life, would be well spent under any conceivable conditions in bringing one human soul to know and love and serve God and his son. This is a man who suffered deeply in his life, lost his wife, children dead, suffering continually. And he said, life, any life would be well spent in any condition if one soul was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ through your work. Friends, some of us, this is heartbreaking to consider, but some of us on judgment day will go before Jesus there will be no spiritual children in our train. There will be no, no spiritual harvest from the, from, the, from, the, from the souls of earth. There will be, there will be no, 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 no bounty received through the warfare that we bring to throw it at the king's feet. We'll have nothing. We'll come empty-handed. And we will be asked what we did with our, with our handing out tract ability with our ability to speak the gospel, with our family time, with our time around the holidays, we will all be asked, let it burn on our heart, to pray to God to give us at least, at least one soul saved through our evangelism before we go and meet him. And if he would be gracious, many, many more. But no matter what it suffers, no matter what it costs, your whole life will be worth it if you bring just one immortal soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, for God, the benefit given to God, as we see in Luke chapter 15, is joy. There is joy and singing and dancing among the angels in the presence of the Father in heaven when one sinner repents as opposed to many righteous people who do not. God is glorified and God bursts with his joy when sinners repent and believe. So let me ask you right now, 
as we speak of evangelism and this content of the gospel that must be believed and the joy that it gives to God and the salvation it gives to you, have you, maybe a child of a Christian, maybe a, maybe a, maybe a teenager in a Christian family, maybe a friend who's been invited here today, maybe, maybe somebody who's been to church all your life or never before, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ ceased your striving, ceased your doing, and simply believed on Jesus? Have you repented from your sin? Said, I will not and I cannot rule my own life. Jesus is the Lord and only in his ways is there blessing and joy. I am a sinner and I must confess. I must receive and seek the forgiveness that is in God alone through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you been born again? so that inwardly you are changed and never the same again? Have you broken your relationship with sin by coming to the cross of Jesus and being forgiven? Have you been saved, friend? Jesus is willing, open-armed, calling you home and will forgive every single person that comes to his Father through him. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we bless you because in your commission to us there is great great joy. There is, a, there, is a, there is a great sense of duty and honor, bound, that, that, and honor binds us to obey our king, that he has come and he has died and he has been victorious over every spiritual authority and every human authority. You have conquered them in order to establish the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the gospel through your blood that anybody who believes will be saved. And we are honor bound, Lord God, since we have received your spirit, since we have received your commission, we are honor bound to proclaim that to the furthest reaches of the earth, to every one of our friends, to our loved ones in our homes and in our streets. Father God, we pray that you would make us to rise up to this, the occasion of the great commission. Now, Father God, we know that it is not just honor that binds us. We need your forgiveness, your grace continually every day and your Holy Spirit to empower us. Please, Lord God, keep us as, as the world would steal our eyes and steal our vision and steal our goals and steal our love and steal our affection. Would you, would you strengthen us so that by, by sanctification, by Bible reading, in our prayer, we can focus ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That we can, we can watch the whole world fade in its glory as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up, raised up, exalted and glorified. He who died for us. Would you give to us the Holy Spirit to be able to proclaim his gospel? And Lord, forgive us as we go and we sin. Forgive us as we go and we stumble and we make mistakes or we sin along the path. Let our, let our own sense of guilt not slow us down for it has, been a, it has been conquered in Jesus Christ's cross. Father God, I also pray for those who are outside of Jesus today who have been considering their soul, who feel the weight and the burn of their sin, who feel the burden of their, of their iniquity that, that weighs them down like a, like a large stone tied around their neck. Lord God, we pray that you would liberate them today and that by your Holy Spirit right now, you would give them a new heart that can look to Jesus Christ by faith, embrace him and call on him and see him really and truly for the very first time as their salvation. Father God, please save to the glory of your son. We pray this in his name. And everybody said, amen. amen.